0: Good morning. morning. Hey, if you're a guest with us, like Ben said, we're glad that you're here this morning. And filling out that Connect card really does help us out quite a bit. Um, We're just excited for that. Hey, we're starting a new series today called What We Believe. And for the next eight weeks, we're going to walk through some of the core beliefs that our church has. And this is really setting us up for the entire year, all of 2018. So we're going to be looking at what does a spirit-led life look like? What, how should Christians live? That's kind of the theme of the year. And so we're going to look at faith and then the fruits of the Spirit. And we're going to close out. We're going to spend quite a bit of time at the later on in the year in the book of Hebrews. And so we're we're really excited about 2018, where the Lord is leading us, but we're going to start with some foundational truth. What is it that we believe? We're going to start today by talking about uh, what we believe about God. What does our culture say about him? And what does he say about himself? Before we jump into that, though, I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I can go from week to week and then, like, hey, one Sunday's over and I forget and I move on and I'm not even thinking about it. Because we cast some vision for the year last Sunday. And a few things we challenged our church to do together, all of us together, we challenged us to all take steps forward in three different areas as we focus on discipleship. The first was serving. And so to help you with that, we have developed a spiritual gifts assessment we're using on our website. You can just click on there and it'll uh, give you some results where the spirit might have uh, gifted you. And then you come here in our ministry fair, which is taking place right out in the lobby. You just go and you find that where you can get connected and serve. And we're challenging everybody. Hey, let's take one more step in 2018 in serving. Another area was giving, and not because we want to know the details of finances, but because giving is a reflection of discipleship. We've challenged everybody to take another step forward in giving, and so we had the REACH initiative cards. And if you didn't get one, I encourage you, grab one on your way out, talk to your family, pray together about joining us on this journey to eliminate any debt that we have at the end of this year so that we can move into 2019 prepared for what God has for our church and what's next. And so we We have this REACH initiative in 2018, and you can learn more about it online, and you can learn more about it with that card uh, as you leave, too. And then the last was groups. I want to challenge everybody to take their next step with groups, whether that is your first time getting plugged into a discipleship group. And we had some of you sign up last week. It was great. And then uh, in addition to that, we want to see you commit to that group, and we want to see some of our groups multiply. Now, just talking to you as a friend, okay? I believe life happens best in community, I just do. My life and the life of my family has been changed because we took that step of courage and got connected to a discipleship group. And I want to encourage you to take that step as well. And you can learn more about that online or right out at the Welcome Center as well. So 2018 is going to be a fun year. We're going to start it today talking about what we believe about God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word and learn. God, I'm grateful that you are a God who challenges our minds, that you engage us with thinking, that we don't have to turn our brains off when we step into a church building, that you actually engage us as we think critically about what you've called us to. Father, thank you that you stir our hearts and affections as we dig deeper into our relationship with you. And so my prayer today, as we open your word, that you would engage both our minds and our hearts as we seek you today through this study. In Jesus' name, amen. So three people are on a plane, and this uh, airplane is going, and the engine fails, so the plane's going down. On the plane, you have the pilot, obviously, and you have a Boy Scout, and then it just so happens on this flight, the smartest man in the world got onto this flight. And so you got the smartest person in the world, a Boy Scout, and the pilot, and the plane's going down. There's only two parachutes. So I don't know who planned this, but uh, the smartest man in the world declares, hey, I owe it to the world to survive. I have so much to offer. I'm the smartest human being on the planet. So he grabs one, throws it on, and jumps out the plane. And now there's only one. And you have a pilot and a Boy Scout. And so the pilot looks at the Boy Scout. He says, "Man, I have lived a full life. I've had so many incredible experiences, and I've accomplished so much in my life. You need to be the one that takes this." And before he could finish, the Boy Scout said, "Mister, hold on. Mister, calm down. Smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. We're good." <laughs> You were more gracious in your laughter than second service, okay? (laughs) Here's the point. Here's the point. There's a lot of smart people in our world jumping out of a plane with a backpack, not taking seriously what they're doing, not considering what's in front of them, not engaging their mind, and instead, they're just jumping. And I think the same is true about some of the most important areas of our life. We just kind of go through the motions, And see, we do that with God all the time as well. What we believe about him, we just kind of go through the motions, we compartmentalize it, we kind of, we don't, we're lazy, we don't put our time and effort into thinking about it, and yet, I don't know a lot about you and your personal life and where you're at, but I do know this to be true, and this comes from A.W. Tozer, he said this, the most important thing about you, right, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you're thinking about God is the most important thing about you as a person, I don't know what your encounter with God has been like. I don't know what your journey has been like in this thing called faith as we explore and try to understand what we believe about God. Maybe you were mistreated in the past at church or maybe you were misguided and maybe you were a part of some things. Maybe you carry guilt and shame and it prevents you from connecting with him. I don't know your story, but I do know this to be true, that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing in your life because it shapes you and molds you more than anything else. And I think that the people who wrote the New Testament that journeyed through uh, starting the early church believed the same thing. I mean, yet the Apostle Paul believed this. If You can read so much of his life in the book of Acts and this incredible person who had a mind completely against God and then became a Christian after he encountered Jesus, now his mind and everything was focused and attentive to everything around him. He wanted to know more about Jesus. And so he goes to these unreached towns. He would go to these towns that did not have Jesus at all, And he would go in and he would begin to engage people and talking and start a church and then pour into these people and then he would leave to the next town. I mean, he had incredible adventures. And here's what I've learned. God's invited each one of us into an adventure and many of us have tried to turn it into a classroom. It's an adventure. It's not just a lecture. It's not just information. It's transformative information. It changes your mind and your heart as you engage in this adventure with God. So Paul shows up to a city like Philippi. And there were no, uh, there was not a church there. There was not even a synagogue. And so he joins with a group, and he begins to share the gospel. He even heals somebody, but that gets him beat and thrown into a dungeon. That's all in your Bible. Now he's in this dungeon, beaten, and he's praying. And then there's an earthquake when everybody could get away, and he tells everybody stay. And as a result, he ends up baptizing the the jailer and his whole family in the middle of the night, leading them to the Lord. And and then like a revival happens in Philippi, and so Paul leaves the church established there, and he moves on he comes to this town called Thessalonica and Paul wasn't always the smoothest when he would go in and talk to people he was kind of a straight shooter so he comes in and begins to share the gospel they don't want to hear it like the Philippians did and so they get frustrated and angry. In fact, they want to kill him, and they're going to try to kill him and take his life. And so he flees and runs to a, a town called Berea. And when he's in Berea, then he, he's trying to share the gospel with them. But the people in Thessalonica find out where he is. And so they're like, hey, we're just going to travel there and kill him. Now the Christians in Berea, they find out, hey, Paul, they're coming from Thessalonica to kill you. We need you to get out of here. And you've kind of created a little bit of a storm with your straight shooter style. And so we're going to get you, and we're going to move you to Athens. And we want you to stay in Athens, and Timothy and Silas will stay back in Berea and try to clean this up a little bit, and then they'll join you. And so this is where we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to learn a lot about God from Paul's journey in Athens. Now, if you have a Bible, you can pull it out and open that Acts 17. If you turn your Bible on, on your phone, or device, and... Grab the Bible in the seat that's in front of you, and that's our gift to you. And I was joking with first service. I said, my father-in-law, who's still on our staff, has preached here for 30 years. And when he would invite people to open their Bibles, he would hear pages turning. When I say open your Bibles, I watch the room light up. It's a different experience with a different generation. So Acts chapter 17, we're going to walk through this encounter in Athens. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, waiting for Timothy and Silas, In Athens, he was deeply troubled by all of the idols that he saw everywhere in that city. So we're going to pause here. Here's one of the things I love about Paul. He couldn't sit still, right? He knew like, hey, if I'm going to be somewhere, I'm not going to be there on accident. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to pay attention to my surroundings. He's not grabbing a backpack. He's looking for a parachute, okay? And he's paying attention to everything that's around him. And this is the thing. The same thing that's true of Paul is true for you. God has gifted each and every one of you with a people and a place. And in order to find that people and to find that place that he's called you to influence, you have to be intentional. So Paul is very intentional. So he says, hey, if I have to wait here in Athens, I'm going to pay attention. And he's really troubled when he sees all these false gods that they've created. That this culture and some of their thinking, they've created all kinds of idols. And an idol is simply something that you elevate to the status of God that is not God. Right? And so they've created their own versions of God. And so verse 17, he went to the synagogue, which was always where he went first. He's going to reason with those who are monotheistic, meaning they had a belief that there was only one God. If he could win them over, then strategically they together could go ahead and reach the city. And so he went to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So this isn't like a 20-minute layover from one flight to the next. He spent days and weeks reasoning with these people and investing. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some really strange things and we want to know more about it. It should be explained at the Athenians and as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all of their time talking about these latest ideas, just kind of dreaming up these new gods and these new concepts and ideas. And so Paul, he gets, his audience grows, right? He starts with the God-fearing Jews and the local people. He then gets asked to come and share among the educated people. And then he gets asked to, it's kind of like going, uh, you're just kind of hanging out with uh, you know, the working class people. Then he gets asked to come and uh, be in the university setting. Then he gets invited into the room with just the professors, and this is kind of the way that, that progression worked. Because he's sharing and they're realizing, he's intelligent, but we, I don't know if we agree with it. But he encounters people, and it says the Epicureans. Epicureans, not to spend too much time on this, they just believe that the goal and the purpose of life was a person's happiness. Like your own personal happiness is the goal of life. Now, as I read that, I thought, I can't think for the life of me of another culture that that's their goal. All right, I don't know if you can think of one, but that's the Epicureans. Then he had the Stoic philosophers. Their approach to life, Stoicism, was that the goal of life was man's ability to reason himself out of uh, ignorance. Meaning we all start out kind of ignorant to what's around us, and our ability to learn and reason with our willpower and our intellect can get us away from ignorance, and now we can be enlightened. And so Paul begins to share the gospel with these people, and as he does, he notices you have created these gods that you want. You want them to look the way you want them to look. And many of you have seen this, right? In a culture like ours, you've seen people will create the God that they want, and then when that God doesn't live up to what they want, they would either say, I don't believe in God, or we try to create a different one. I like the way that J.D. Greer, he's a preacher, he describes this. He says it this way, Satan's strategy from the very beginning has been to twist our view of God beyond what God has said about himself. So we look at God and we think, hey, I'm not going to just pay attention to what God has told us about himself. I'm going to allow other things to influence this. And then he would have us reject that distorted view, thinking that we're really rejecting the real God. And so we conjure up an idea of God, and we think of God the way we want God to be. And then when that God doesn't perform the way we want him to perform, we reject him and convince ourselves that we're actually rejecting the God of the Bible. And we see this happen all the time in our culture. Paul is seeing this happen in Athens. like He's seeing these people create their own gods and then reject them or move to the next one or worship multiple ones, and it's really disturbing him. And so I wanted to do a little bit of research and say, okay, in our culture, what are some of the gods that are created and worshipped in our culture? What is the view of God in our culture, the multiple views of the false god that our culture has created? And so I'm indebted to uh, many people that did this research, uh, preachers and and writers. But here's the list. We're going to start down and kind of look at what's the list, what's our Athens look like? We walk around and we notice these different depictions of God, what does it look like? First one I'm going to share with you is the Goosebumps God. So we're going very intellectual here. Uh, this This is the idea that if God is real, then I need to be able to feel him all the time. He should always give me goosebumps and make me feel good and make me feel warm and cozy, and it should just be a great thing, and I should always feel him. And honestly, there's been a wave in evangelicalism and a wave in the modern church where a church service is... Intended goal is only to engage you at an emotional level because if you can feel that God is there, only feel, then you'll believe in Him. But my question is this where in the Bible does it ever say that we're always going to be able to feel God? See, the Bible never affirms this false God, this goosebumps God. And we're, we're doing this reading for the second year now called the Read Scripture app. And the way it works is you read through some scripture and then you pray through a psalm with each corresponding day. And what I've learned in just the first 13 days of reading in the book of Psalms is that we are not promised we will always feel God's presence. As a matter of fact, the psalmist will continually write, God, where are my, why are my enemies surrounding me? Where are you? I can't feel you. I can't see you. It's just an honest lament of the heart. I, can't, I don't know where you are, God. You're not present. Let me illustrate this way. Suppose I wake up tomorrow and I say, I don't feel married. That doesn't make me any less married, right? Just because I don't feel it. And see, your feelings, here's something that I don't know if you know this, but your feelings don't have brains. You are not led to truth by your feelings. You are led to feel based on truth. And we've mixed it up, and we've created the God, the Goosebumps God. See, we don't feel our way into our beliefs. We believe our way into our feelings. And so the God, Goosebumps God, doesn't exist. And if that's the God you've created and walked away from, that's good because he was never there to begin with. The second God that our culture has created is what I call the easygoing God. And the easygoing God says this, if God is real, then my life should be easygoing. It should be pretty simple. I should not experience hardship or difficulty. And I, this is the God that I believed in as a young person growing up. I didn't become a Christian until I was a senior in high school. And before that, I thought, if there is a God, then why is my life so bad? Why is there so much difficulty around me? And so, because there's difficulty, I did what a lot of people who believe in the easygoing God do. I said, if there's pain or suffering or difficulty, then God must not exist. Once again, though, as we seek truth, where in Scripture does it ever say that bad, unfortunate, or unfair things are not going to happen to good people? It never affirms that. Jesus himself said, in this life, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Think about it this way. Christianity started with a very horrible thing happening to a very good person. Jesus was completely innocent. All Jesus told people were to love children, take care of women, take care of the orphans and the widows, and to love your enemy and to care for everyone that's around you. And because of that very good teaching and that very good person, what happened? They crucified him and they killed him. The early church movement was built on bad things happening to a group of really good people that wanted to love and care for the world. So here's the deal. The easygoing God doesn't exist. Your life having good things happening to you or bad things happen to you does not prove the existence or non-existence of God. He is there. And when we read scripture, here's what we learn. Not that there's an easygoing God, but there's a God that says in your darkest moments, I will use your pain to bring out good. I will work together for the good of all those who love me and are called according to my purpose. This is what God declares, not that your life will be easy simply because you follow him, what about the third God? Maybe this is the one that you believed and I call it the Burger King God or the your way right away God. Okay? Remember that old motto of Burger King, your way right away? They stopped doing it because they couldn't live up to it. So this is the God. This is the God that if your request is reasonable, he's going to give you everything that you want. Right? As long as it's a reasonable request, he'll give you everything that you want. and He'll kind of work in your life and give you all the things that you desire, which means when he doesn't, when this God we've created doesn't give me what I want, When I want it or when I think I should get it, then he must not exist. Therefore, I don't believe in God. Because that's what the God of the Bible, God of the Bible said, he's going to provide all of my needs. And if he doesn't provide what I want and need, he must not be real. But let me ask you this question. Think about it this way. If this God existed, this world would be a pretty rough place to live. I wouldn't have my wife or my kids in my life. Why? Because when I was young and my young teenage brain, if God gave me everything that I wanted, I'd have ruined a lot of lives. My life would not be where it is today if I would have just pursued everything that I wanted. Now, we meet with this as a group on Monday mornings. And we've got some people that come in and we do a study, like a theological study, every Monday morning for about an hour and 15 minutes and we kind of jump into the deep end of theology. We're in the middle of discussing prayer right now. And so this past Monday, we looked at the Lord's Prayer and I'm going to use it as a model to say, hey, can we learn a little bit about this, your way right away, God. The Lord's Prayer, Jesus told us to pray beginning this way, our Father, and so we learned that God is a really good dad. And so if you think about the your way right away God and God being a good dad, they don't work well together because any good dad will tell you, you don't give your kids everything they want whenever they want it. That's not good parenting, right? If I, I think about this, if I gave my kids everything they wanted whenever they wanted, I would live in California and be in jail for stalking Stephen Curry, Right? <laughs> Because my son is a huge Golden State Warriors fan and a big Stephen Curry. So he's always saying, can we please go to California? Can I meet Steph Curry? Let's go meet him. I'm like, you can't just meet him. You don't just decide I want to meet this guy. right? You end up in prison. And so that's where I'd be if I gave my son everything that he wanted. No, good dads don't do that because they see the big picture. And God is no different. In that prayer, he also says, your kingdom come, which means, hey God, this is not about me. This is about your glory. And the things that I desire should be things that build your kingdom. It says, your will be done. God, no matter how I think something should go or what I think the results should be or the way that I think something should happen, I will submit because you know more than me. You see more than me. It's not my way right away. It's your way. You see, the God of the Bible leaves no room for the Burger King God. But maybe that's not the God you've struggled with. Maybe for you, it was the dictator God And this is the God that has all the rules and regulations, and he says, uh, the only thing in life is for you to obey me, and I'm going to push out all the joy and all the fun, and there's nothing happy and good and enjoyable. There's no pleasure, there's no partying, there's no excitement, there's definitely no talk of sex, none of this stuff at all. It's just rules and oppression, and that's all that we're here for. And maybe you have experienced this God, this God of rules and oppression and difficulty, but... Once again, I ask you, where in the Bible does it say that God's goal in giving us regulations and rules and boundaries was to steal the joy out of us? You see, I think one of the reasons we view God that way is because we've created this false dictator God in our mind because we are under the impression that any, any presence of rules or regulations in our life means that we're being oppressed. We think somehow freedom is the absence of regulation. Freedom is the absence of rules when it's not. Freedom is the presence of the proper rules. And God is all about our freedom and our joy. I think that we think that anyone who brings a rule or tries to tell us how to do something is there to oppress us and be a bigot and be difficult and be angry at us all the time, and that's not the case. Think about it this this way. I've used this illustration with you before. What if every human being on the face of the planet, regardless of your worldview or your religion or your thought process, obeyed God's one rule about sex? Right? Right? Doesn't matter what you believe, so it's not a belief thing. It's just, hey, we're all going to do what God says about sex. He's one rule. And his rule is this, that sex is reserved for one man and one woman in a marriage relationship for a lifetime, and that's it. Would our world be a better place or a worse place? Unwanted pregnancy, gone. Abortions, gone. You'd have uh, divorce rate plummeting. STDs go away. The pornography business is bankrupt. You see, I don't think God had in mind that if you would obey my rules, that it will destroy joy. I think what God had in mind is not that He's a dictator, but that He's a giver and that He's kind. And He says, if you'll obey these boundaries, you will experience the fullness of these gifts. But when you don't operate within these boundaries, these gifts go bad. In the Read Scripture app that we're calling, asking everybody to be a part of, on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, the 16th, you'll be in Psalm 16 as you pray, and here's what you'll read. In your presence is the fullness of joy, God. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, God's not a joy killer. He's not a dictator. He is a joy giver. He fulfills joy. Maybe for you, though, it's not the dictator God, but it's the anti-science or the blind faith God. That somehow we've created this image of God or this thought of God that tells us that when we come into church, we turn our brains off, that it's blind faith and you shouldn't use logic or reasoning or your mind, that your brain can't operate within the church building. Because science, somehow we learn and we've been told that science and faith cannot work well together, that we are told to choose between the undeniable findings of science and the unreliable truths of the Bible. Once again, where do you find this in the scriptures? Where? Many Christians helped launch the modern science movement. They said that God created everything and he made so much of it observable, so let's make observations, and they called it science. But then we had another group of lazy Christians who said the Bible only says this and only does this, and they were not taking their faith seriously. They were grabbing the backpack and not the parachute. And they began to create a wedge between science and faith as though they're opposites of one another. And they didn't read the Bible the way the Bible's written. Look, I love the Bible. It's infallible, it's inspired, it is the perfect word of God, but it also has literary styles within it. Poetry and prophecy and other techniques of writing that were not intended to communicate scientific accuracy with their words. And yet that's what people have read into it and said it has to say it this way. Let me give you an example. Suppose that my five-year-old Luke, and he actually did this last night, so it's fascinating. He were to come to us and say, Mommy, Daddy, where do babies come from? You see, Luke and I have this thing where I say, Hey, I love you more than you love me. And he'll say, I love you more than what you just said. I say, I love you more than what you just thought. And he'll go back and forth. And last night he said, Well, Daddy, I love you more than you even thought about me before I was in Mommy's tummy. All right? And so I th- said, so, That's good. You win. Um, and, and, but the whole th- I wasn't going any further. And he said... Mommy's tummy. Because when he asked that question, where do babies come from? Our answer to him was, hey, babies come from mommy's tummy. Now the answer I give to my five year old son is different than I would give to a high schooler. Where do babies come from, Rob? Your mommy's tummy? Like, no, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna say it comes from an activity you should not be engaged in whatsoever right now in your life and And we would talk about that, right? Now, the answer to my five-year-old son, Luke, and the answer to the high school student is different than the answer that my friend Kyle, who's a medical student at Vanderbilt right now, is studying. He is answering that question on a whole different level, right? Now, are Sarah and I bad parents, or are we neglecting Luke simply because we don't explain where babies come from the way that Kyle's learning about it at Vanderbilt? No, we're not. Certain ways of communicating require certain words certain things and the bible uses certain things to communicate uses certain words to communicate certain things that weren't intended to be scientifically the most accurate all the time a good way to think about it is sir francis bacon said this when god create when god wrote the bible he really wrote two books god wrote the inspired perfect infallible word of god and he also wrote the book of creation and when you look around you You can see what God wrote into creation with his words as he spoke things into being, right? And so you see the Bible and you see creation. And when you think that somehow science and your faith contradict what the Bible tells us is push into both. The creation declares God's greatness and God's word declares his greatness. Lean into both and he'll meet you there. They're not against each other. They work together to point you to God. One more false god. Maybe for you, your idea of God is the guilt trip or the manipulator God. This is the God who holds all of your mistakes over your head. This is the God who belittles you and manipulates you into leading a shame, shame-based, a shame-led life of obedience. <laughs> I think many Christians live with this idea of God. God loves me, I get it, but he sure doesn't like me. And so I'm manipulated and guilted into living this certain way. And when I don't, if I don't live up to this standard, then God cannot possibly like me. Once again, that's not what we read in the Bible. So where is it that we get this idea of God being a guilt trip manipulator? Where do we get that idea of God? I think it comes from two primary sources. One, people's bad experience with an earthly father. I think they they grow up with an earthly father who was a manipulator, who was angry all the time, who you could never live up to, who mistreated you, maybe even abused you, and just belittled you all the time and said you were never good enough and you couldn't live up to it, and you imposed that experience with an earthly father onto your heavenly father. And the Bible says God is a good father. He's not like that. But because we've created this image of our own understanding of what a good father is based on our bad experience, we've imposed it onto God and said, I can't believe in that God. I'd rather not sit under his oppression And it's manipulation, so I'm out. The second way I think people fall into this view of God is the legalistic experience with Christians. These Christians who say, the only way you can be a good Christian is if you live this way, this way, and this way. So never, ever, ever watch a rated R movie. Always do this. And it's just like, ah. And there's so many rules and regulations. And if you don't, we'll make you feel so guilty for making a mistake. And we will manipulate you into living only this way because it's the only way that you're allowed to live. And so they experience these legalistic Christians And they're like, if that's what it means to live under this manipulator God, I'm out. And they walk away. Maybe one of these gods is the God that you've experienced. These are the gods of our culture that we look around and we see. And Paul would have looked around in Athens and said, I see that too. And so Paul looks around and he says, I see all these gods, but let me me talk to you on this level. And so we're going to pick up verse 22 briefly. He says this, So Paul, standing before this council of all of these intellectuals, he addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. So he's paying attention. He's focused on where he is. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had an inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm about to tell you about. And so I love that, because they even made a false God to the God they couldn't think of. We can't think this up, so let's just make one just in case we cover our bases right? so that we don't have to worry about not pleasing him. But Paul was not on a crusade against the culture. Please hear this. He was on a mission to save the culture, so he used their own language against them. He said, let me tell you about this God that you've created that you don't know. Let me introduce you to him. And he begins to tell him, he's the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands cannot serve his needs, for he has no needs. We just sang about that. You are not a God created by human hands. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and when they should fall, and he defined and determined their boundaries. His purpose was for nations to seek after God, and perhaps, perhaps, It's not the only way, but perhaps feel their way toward God and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He is everywhere. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked many people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he's done for you what you could not do for yourself, and he he commands everyone to repent of their sins, And turned to him. Why? Because he set a day for judging the world with justice by the man that he appointed, the one who did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, and he proved it to everyone when he raised him from the dead. I mean, he just lays out the gospel. It's like drop the mic and walk away. But he doesn't. He engages them where they're at. See, he just laid out two things: God's nature as creator and God's purpose as our redeemer. And so when you look at just this list that Paul laid out in Acts 17, Here's some of the things we learn about God. The first thing is this. He's the God of truth. right? Paul just said he's the one that created everything. Everything starts with God, which means anything after that can trace its origin back to that. Does that make sense? So if God starts everything, everything that flows from the beginning can find its way back to the beginning, which means all truth is God's truth. And if you will not be lazy, but you will engage your mind, you will do your homework, you will not grab the backpack... You'll grab the parachute, because you've done your homework. I believe wholeheartedly in exploration of any truth. The further you deep, the, close- the further you go deeper, the closer you get to the origin of truth, which is God. He'll meet you there. The second thing we learn is this, that he's the God of grace and love. It says he used to ignore these things, but he doesn't anymore because he's done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. It says that he, is, he loves you and he cares about you. He created you. He crafted all things and he protects all people. He's the God of grace. Verse 25 says he provides for all of your needs, which means he loves you and he cares about you. We've said it this way around here. He's crazy about you. You excite God. When he thinks about you, when he's with you, he gets excited like any good dad would. The third thing we learn is that he's a God of justice. Many of us don't like this. We don't like it because we didn't create it. Every one of us loves justice when we can define it. The problem is we don't get to define God's justice. God, in order to be truthful and honest, must be just. And it says that he is going to punish those who repent repent those who put their faith in Jesus, they're baptized the Christ and live a spirit-filled life, they will be saved. And God will judge those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he has said. But 1 Peter says he's waiting. He's being patient. And why is he being patient? It goes back to number two because he's grace and love. He wants nothing more than to see every single person come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he cares about more than anything else. Which tells us number four, he is a really good dad. He is your heavenly father and he wants his children to come home. He wants his children to come to faith and so he will he's waiting patiently. Which tells us the last thing this. He's a God who welcomes your doubts. He welcomes your doubts. He's not intimidated by them. You can doubt out loud with him. You can talk to him. You can tell him where you're feeling weak. Paul says right here, he stayed afterwards and reasoned with these people. Some of them believed and some of them didn't, but Paul said, it's okay to doubt. Just ask questions. Here's the thing. Doubt all you want, but don't be lazy. This is when Jesus encountered Thomas after he resurrected one of the disciples. You have Jesus who is uh, dead in one moment and alive in the next, and Thomas is like, i st- still not believing it. I see you, but I don't believe this. He says, come and touch the scars and, and believe, Thomas. He didn't say, well, you don't believe me. Well, good luck to you. Get out of here, Thomas. He doesn't do that. Let me engage you and meet you where you're at. So three things as we close out. What's all this? Why does it matter what you think about God? Why is it the most important thing? Three things. One is what you believe about God impacts your eternity. I love it this way. Dallas Willard once said, Eternity is now in session. And you think about your forever, you're going to live forever somewhere. And what you believe about God impacts what your eternity is going to be. The second thing is this that what you believe about God impacts your today, right now. Jesus said in John 10.10 10, that he came that you might have the fullness of life right here and right now. He wants you to experience a good and full life right here and right now. It's not just an afterlife insurance policy. This is an all-of-life transformation. Which brings us to the last one. Friends, this is an encouragement to you. Your emotions are not a healthy gauge of your reality. They are not. So you have to engage your mind and your heart. You cannot just trust your feelings. Engage your mind. Explore truth. Reason things out. Don't turn your brain off and know that he is with you every step of the way. Acknowledge his presence around you. Let me close this way. In cinema and film, there's this, uh, this rule. It's called the fourth wall. I don't know if you've heard of this. The fourth wall is this idea that uh, the camera, where the camera is, or if you've watched a sitcom and you can hear the audience clap, the audience behind, the fourth wall, actors are trained to ignore it. Performers are trained to not pay attention to the audience or anything around them so that they can make this as realistic as possible. So they ignore the fourth wall where the audience is. Now, maybe you've watched shows. I love certain shows when the timing's perfect and the performers break the fourth wall, right? If you've ever watched The Office when, right, Jim or Dwight do something and they kind of look over at the camera and they're breaking the fourth wall. They're not supposed to acknowledge that you're there, but they do and they break the fourth wall, I'm convinced that many Christians live their lives with this fourth wall, spiritually speaking. We live our lives as though God's not around us, that he's not present, that he's not watching every moment of your life. And I think what you believe about God is really a call to break the fourth wall. It's to acknowledge his presence around you all the time in every single moment. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're saying, whoever you're with, wherever you are, he's there and he's present. And when you believe that, it transforms and changes everything about your life. So the call to what you believe about God is a call to break the fourth wall. Friends, I don't know a lot about you individually, but I do know this. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we've had as a church. My prayer is that your word would have an impression on our heart, but an impression on our mind as well. Father, that this would not just be a classroom or an adventure, but it would be an all-of-life transformation. That when we think about you, we'd break that fourth wall, that we would recognize that you're here with us in every moment and every moment of our lives, every thought, every conversation. You're here with us and you love us. For for that, God, we're grateful. As we leave this place, may we be a group of people that live in community with our God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I love about this next moment that we call communion. It's a built-in time during your week where you can break the fourth wall. Maybe this week you've had moments where you've compartmentalized your life and not thought about God. You didn't invite him into certain moments and now this time of communion is a time where you can say it's a built-in moment of silence and quiet where if just for a moment you can say, Lord, I recognize that you're here. And in that moment where you break that fourth wall and you take that communion, you are recognizing that what really broke that wall down was the sacrifice that it required to create this moment. When Jesus died the death that you deserved to die and then he defeated death, and rose from the dead, it tore down the wall that separated you and God. And this moment is a time to reflect on that with gratitude and kind of realign your life with that truth, that he is present with you because of Jesus. Think about that as we take communion together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. As we take communion together as a church, may we reflect and be grateful for your presence among us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.